If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 12, where we find a powerful passage in Luke's gospel on faithfulness in the face of trial. Luke chapter 12, verses 1 to 12 will be our our text this morning. And I'll ask you to follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 1, Luke chapter 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to say to His disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do to you. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. While even the hairs of your head are all numbered, fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Amen. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we need Your help. Anytime we open the Word of God, it's a spiritual activity that requires, Father, illumination from the Holy Spirit Himself. And so, that's what we ask You for this morning, Father, that You would dispel the darkness that lingers in our hearts and minds, that You would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from Your Word, that You would unite our hearts to fear Your name. That you would give us grace, Father, to believe what we have heard here in your word. I pray for grace, Father, that you would keep me from error. I pray for discernment for your church. That in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, God, we would shine like stars by our allegiance to the truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the face of increasing opposition... Will we remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the question of this passage, friends. And it's the question that the church must answer in every age. In the face of increasing opposition, will we hold fast to the truth, not being tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine? Will we pass on to the next generation what we have received from our fathers and mothers in the faith, That is, the undiluted and undimmed gospel of our Lord. Will we remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ? You can see this very question in the context of our passage. As we saw at the end of Luke chapter 11, the opposition towards Jesus from the Jewish religious leaders is increasing. And at this point, the opposition is 
directed towards Jesus, but very soon it will turn towards Jesus' disciples. Even after Jesus is gone, the persecution will continue. You would think that they would let up after they killed Jesus, but they don't. Even after Jesus is gone, the religious leaders come after Peter and James and John and all the rest of them. Knowing this, Jesus does what any good shepherd would do. He prepares his disciples ahead of time for what is coming. That's what this passage is about. It's preparation for Jesus' disciples so that they'll remain faithful. Beware, Jesus says, verse 2. Don't be afraid, Jesus counsels us, verse 4. Acknowledge me, verse 8. Don't be anxious, verse 11. You see the preparation from the Lord? Jesus knows what's coming, so his aim here is to equip his disciples to be faithful until the end. Brothers and sisters, that's why I say the question of this passage is, will we remain faithful? Because while the context has changed, the challenge remains the same. This is what Jesus' disciples face in every generation. Opposition from the world, and especially from those who are secure in their self-made religion. And so then, will disciples endure? Will we persevere? What Jesus' disciples faced in their day, we face in our day. And so the question that's driving Jesus in Luke chapter 12 is the question that we also must answer. Will we remain faithful to the Lord? Of course, faithfulness is costly, isn't it? We know the history of Jesus' disciples. Ten of the eleven faithful apostles gave their lives for Christ. That's not a great recruiting tactic. The Apostle John spent the rest of his life in exile. Paul endured hardship everywhere he went. You don't have to read much further in the New Testament to understand that faithfulness is costly. But friends, that's where the real value of this passage is found. Here in these verses, Jesus doesn't deny the difficulty of faithfulness. He says they're going to haul you before the authorities. He doesn't deny that it's going to be hard. He doesn't sugarcoat the trials. But at the same time, Jesus doesn't leave his disciples to face them on their own. It's not as though Jesus says, look, it's going to be hard. I hope you make it. That's not what the Lord does. It's just the opposite. With great care, Jesus prepares his people ahead of time. He gives his disciples clear encouragement that will sustain them in the faith. This is the kindness of of the Lord Jesus, brothers and sisters. He gives us what we need to live in the way that He commands. He gives us what we need to live in the way that He commands. Or, to put it the way the Apostle John said, His commandments are not burdensome. He gives us what we need. And Jesus does this here in this passage by drawing our attention to some key truths about the character of God. That's where the encouragement is found in seeing who God is, and then in seeing how God's character produces in the believer what we need to stand firm. Jesus gives us God, in other words. So in terms of an outline, there are three sections in the passage, which means I want us to see three encouragements from the Lord that sustain us in faithfulness. Each encouragement comes with a warning, you might say, but each one is also rooted in some aspect of God's character. So, with the aim of being faithful to Christ until the very end, let's, let's note these encouragements uh, together. First encouragement is found in verses 1 to 3. The judgment of God 
reveals every heart. The judgment of God reveals every human heart. Again, Luke tells us that the crowds are increasing, but Jesus' focus remains on His disciples. And Jesus begins here with a warning. Notice verse 1, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, if you remember last week, then you'll recall how Jesus thoroughly eviscerated the hypocritical religion of the Pharisees. The Lord held nothing back. The religious leaders are two-faced, more concerned with appearances than with substance. They're more interested in their own position than they are in serving other people. They're hypocritical leaders. That was last week. Now Jesus adds to the warning. He says hypocrisy is like leaven. It's like yeast. It spreads. (laughs) It starts small and then it spreads out and it infects every area of your life. So that just like the Pharisees, if you tolerate hypocrisy, you end up living a double life. The appearance of your life doesn't match the reality of your heart. And so Jesus is very clear here in verse 1. Beware of that leaven. Beware of hypocrisy. Don't assume that you're above this temptation. Be on guard against the spreading, infecting, corrupting effects of a hypocritical heart. Be on guard. Then Jesus adds a new piece, though, to the warning about hypocrisy, and it has to do with God, particularly with God's judgment on the last day. Notice verse 2. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Now, it helps to ask some questions in response to Jesus' statement. Who is revealing the things that were covered up? Well, God is revealing them because only God is omniscient. He sees all and knows all. Therefore, when this great unveiling happens, it's God who does it. Who does it? God. When will it happen? On the last day. When will the things covered up be brought into the light? On the last day. When God brings everything out into the open and every person who's ever walked on the face of the earth gives an account for every word and action that they've done. In fact, that's what Jesus anticipates. Verse 3, look, Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So, the last day is in view. The day when God brings all things into the light. Now, think about this in connection with Jesus' warning in verse 1. The connection is actually very powerful. Remember, He said, Beware of hypocrisy. And then he says, everything's going to be made known. What's the connection between those two things? Well, it's actually very powerful. What's the appeal of hypocrisy? If we're just being honest, if we're not being good Christians who know that hypocrisy is bad, what's the appeal of being a hypocrite? Well, it's the fact that you can maintain an appearance that's better than what you really are. That's the appeal. And that's precisely why Jesus says what he says in verses 2 and 3. There's a limit to what you can cover up. There's a limit to the game that you can play. There comes an end point for even the very best hypocrite. There will be a day when God brings all things into the light. And on that day, the reality of your life will be made very clear. Hypocrites will be exposed, while those who are faithful to God will receive the Lord Jesus' commendation. That's the connection. In fact, in that sense, friends, notice how Jesus uses the reality of the last day to encourage faithfulness today in the present. 
This is actually a theme throughout the entire passage. Jesus repeatedly brings the future into the present. He repeatedly brings the last day into today in order to tell us, be faithful. He calls His followers to live not for the moment, but for the end. And in that sense, Jesus' warning here is like a wake-up call. You might be thinking, this doesn't sound very encouraging. You said it was an encouragement. How is this encouraging? Well, it's a wake-up call. Right? There's mortal danger ahead. And Jesus is telling us ahead of time what's coming. That should encourage you that He's looking out for your eternal good. It's a wake-up call. Jesus wakes us up to the fact that today is not the sum total of your life. There is a last day, and on that last day, God's judgment will reveal every human heart. Therefore, be faithful today, Jesus says. Don't fall for the trap of hypocrisy. You may fool someone today, but on the last day, no amount of hypocrisy can fool God. So practically, brothers and sisters, the takeaway from these first three verses is to live an honest life before the face of God. It's to live an honest life before the face of God. If there is something that you're covering up in your life, something that you're aiming to keep hidden, then Jesus would tell you to listen to this warning. Beware of thinking that hypocrisy will protect you because it won't. So if there's something that you're covering up, bring it into the light today. The last day is coming and Jesus will expose it then. So why not live in the light today? Bring it into the light, trusting that there is mercy and grace for those who humble themselves before the Lord. Listen, that's the real tragedy of hypocrisy. By attempting to maintain appearances today, the only thing you accomplish is to miss out on the mercy and grace of God. If you bring it into the light today and confess, God has grace for those who trust His Son and confess their sin before Him. So live in the light, friends. That's the encouragement. Live in the light today and find the mercy and grace of God or wait till the last day and face His judgment. Live faithfully today. Hypocrisy won't protect you, but humility and honesty before God does lead to life and forgiveness. So live in the light. Live in the light. The judgment of God will reveal every single heart. And therefore, we ought to live faithfully today in the light because that's where the mercy and grace of God is found. That's the first encouragement from Jesus to be faithful. The second encouragement continues with the theme of living for the last day. In verses 4 to 7, Jesus shows us how the fear of God drives out fear. The fear of God drives out fear. As before, Jesus emphasizes God's power to judge. But in this section, he does so by drawing a stark contrast between two different types of fear. The fear of man and the fear of God. And Jesus begins this contrast with a surprising statement. Something that sounds almost dismissive to our ears. Notice verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. So Jesus is addressing one of the major roadblocks to faithfulness for a Christian, and it's the fear of man. It's the fear of what other people might think about me or do to me if I remain faithful to Christ. 
And Jesus' point in verse 4 is that we shouldn't fear man because man's power is limited. The only thing that other people can do to Jesus' disciples is kill them. And after that, there's nothing else that they can do. Their power is limited. All they can do is kill you. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a rather cavalier way to approach death. All they can do is kill, kill me? Really? That's all? That sounds like a lot. So what is Jesus getting at? What's his point? Is he really telling us just to pay no attention to what other people do? That losing our lives is no big deal? Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, not exactly. Notice where Jesus goes in verse 5. He goes to the reality of God. This is key, friends. Jesus goes to the reality of God. When we keep God's authority in view, all other authorities are put in the proper place. That's Jesus' point. Notice how it works. Verse 5. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So unlike man whose authority is limited, God's authority extends to eternity. God has the authority not only to take physical life, but also to impart spiritual, eternal judgment. God has the authority to cast someone into hell. And, and yes, friends, hell is real. Take it on Jesus' word. There is a place of punishment. It is eternal. It is rooted in the character of God. And those who end up in hell do so on the authority of God. God casts them into hell. Hell is real. And that's why Jesus says very clearly that we ought to fear God. Three times, in fact, in verse 5, Jesus says it. Fear God, fear God, fear God. Now, we don't talk about the fear of God in our churches very much anymore. That's not to our good. We don't talk about the fear of God very much, but in the Bible, there's hardly a more important topic for the Christian life than the fear of God. So let's be clear on what we're talking about when we say to fear God. The fear of God does not mean cowering in the corner, afraid of getting zapped with a heavenly bolt of lightning. That's not what it means to fear God. Rather, to fear God means to live every day in light of who God is, in light of His character. It means to have your daily decisions shaped by God's authority, God's holiness, God's power, God's presence, God's goodness, and God's mercy. Since God has the authority over all things, including my eternal life, I am to live today in a way that honors His name. I'm to live today, I'm to order my life today in light of the fact that God will be my judge on the last day and I will stand before Him. That's the fear of God, friends, at least in its brief form. It means to act today in light of who God is and my accountability to Him. Fear God. Live as though He is what He really is, God. And when we live that way, when we fear God, do you know what happens? Do you know what happens when we fear God? We don't fear other people. We don't fear other people and what they can do to us. We don't fear man whose power is limited to only this life. 
You see the connection between verse 4 and verse 5? One of the great enemies to faithfulness is the fear of man. And therefore the great remedy to that is to fear someone greater, namely God. So mark it down. Mark it down. An essential ingredient for faithfulness to Christ is a robust sense of fear. Not the fear of man, but the fear of God. Therefore, if we want to remain faithful, brothers and sisters, we need a heavy dose. You, you just think our church is weird. You're about to hear how weird it is. We need a heavy dose of the holiness and majesty and glory of God. That's what we need to be more faithful. We don't need more tips on how to avoid bad habits. We need more God. Listen, this is why our preaching at Midtown puts such an emphasis on knowing God, His character and His attributes and His word and His ways. We're not trying to sound intellectual or high-minded. In case you haven't noticed, we're not a very highfalutin church. We're not trying to just impress ourselves with the fact that we know a bunch of doctrine. No, we care about God because we recognize there's a last day and I want to be faithful to Him and the pathway to faithfulness is to fear God and to know Him. I look at all of your names on a membership roll every week and I pray for you and I recognize that I'm accountable to God for you along with the other pastors. And so therefore, one of the things that I'm going to do when I stand behind this pulpit is give you what you need to make it to the end and that's God. The more we see God, the more we fear Him in the biblical sense and the more we fear Him, the more faithfulness will take root in our lives. Think of it this way. If I have the last day firmly in view, the day when I stand before the living God, when I, if I have that last day in view, there's not much you can do to me today that scares me. If God is big in my life and I'm thinking about the last day and I'm living in light of it, there's not much you can do that would scare me. There's not much you can do that would make me afraid of you. Why is that? Is it because I'm tough and because I'm able to stand firm? No. It's because the God whom I know and fear is far greater than anything you can do to me. That's why Jesus says, all they can do is kill you. And after that, they can't do anything else. He's not being glib. He's not being dismissive. He's being God-centered. He's telling us to live in light of who God is. That's where Christian courage comes from. Not from Christians who are tough on their own, but from Christians who know their God. But you'll notice in the passage that Jesus is not, dis he's not done discussing fear. He says, fear God, fear God, fear God. And then at the end of verse 7, he says, don't fear. So he's, he's got something else going on. He's got one more thing that he wants us to say. And it completes this picture of fearing God. So look at verse 6 where Jesus highlights God's care for even the smallest aspect of His creation. Jesus says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Now, sparrows, if you were living in Jesus' day and you were going to the marketplace to buy something to offer at the temple, sparrows were the cheapest thing you could buy. Right? They're just worth a couple of pennies. They were so cheap you wouldn't even really think about them. And yet God thinks about them. That's what Jesus says. Even though you can buy five sparrows for two cents, God knows each one. He provides for each one. He knows them. He thinks about them. Again, notice how Jesus is taking the character of God and He's putting it at the center of His teaching. What is God like? He's good. He's so good, in fact, that He cares for even these throwaway pieces of creation that we might say. He cares for sparrows. 
But Jesus' concern is not with sparrows, it's with Christians, it's with his disciples. So look at verse 7, where Jesus makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. Verse 7, why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Of more value to whom? To God. It's an incredible statement. If God cares for sparrows with purposeful attention, how much more will he care for you, his children? The answer is much more. He even numbers all the hairs of your head. You might call that excessive. Jesus calls it love. He cares for all of his creation, especially his children. It's the love of God. And therefore, Jesus' disciples shouldn't fear what this world can do to them. Fear not, Jesus says. Don't be afraid. You see what's happened? The fear of God has driven out the fear of man and replaced it with faith. Because we know God's commitment to His children, we can orient our lives towards Him. We can fear Him even when it's costly. We can remain faithful to Christ regardless of what that faithfulness entails. Our lives are in God's hands. The same God who cares for sparrows. And if He cares for a few sparrows, how much more will He care for you and me? The answer is far more than we can ask or imagine. The fear of God drives out the fear of man, and it replaces it with faith in a good heavenly Father. Listen, we need courage, brothers and sisters. We, we, we need courage. As we face a world of increasing pressure, we need courage far more perhaps than what we've thought in the past. And what Jesus is telling us here in this whole passage where he talks about not fearing man, fearing God, and then the fear of God driving out the fear of man, what Jesus is getting at in this whole flow in verses 4 through 7, he's trying to make this point. Courage, courage flows from your theology. Courage flows from your view of God. In fact, courage is more about your view of God than it is about your inner resolve. The bigger your vision of God, the more courage will take root in your heart. I have two sons. They're 12 and soon to be 10. And I want them to be courageous. So therefore, I pray that they will have a big vision of God. right? Because courage is more about your vision of God than it is about your inner resolve. God's authority is greater than anything this world can muster, so we should fear Him. And God's goodness is far deeper than anything we can fathom, so we should trust Him. Fear not, Jesus says. To paraphrase it, be of good courage. Be of good courage, for your Father is both mighty and good. The fear of God drives out the fear of man and replaces it with faith in the goodness of God. Who says that doctrine isn't practical? I scoff at that. Right here is a stunning application of the character of God to our daily lives. The fear of God drives out fear. As we come to verse 8, we find the, the final encouragement from Jesus. And this one puts faithfulness perhaps most clearly in view. From verses 8 to 12, Jesus encourages us that the Spirit of God sustains our confession. That's the last encouragement. The Spirit of God sustains our confession. These verses have a very specific focus in the life of Jesus' disciples. What Jesus anticipates here in these verses is the history of the early church when both 
Jewish and Gentile authorities opposed the ministry of the gospel. So think about Peter and John before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. Or think about Paul before King Felix in Acts 26. Uh, Acts 24, I'm sorry. That's what Jesus anticipates. He's anticipating the history of the early church where Jesus' followers were persecuted for the sake of Christ. At the same time, though, we know that opposition to the gospel didn't stop with the early church. It's continued through every age. So, we are here this morning because brothers and sisters before us remained faithful to Christ. I wish we had that in view every time we walked through the doors to gather for worship. We're in this room because someone before us remained faithful to the Lord and passed down the gospel from one generation to the next. I wish we thought about that every single Sunday. And that means that Jesus' words, while directed to the disciples, have bearing on our lives. So verses 8 to 12 are clearly about the history of the early church, but what I'm saying is that the history of the early church sets the, tra the trajectory for the entire life of the church. And so what they faced, we also face. Jesus' words to them then should be applicable to us. That's the point I'm trying to make. So let's look at what he says. The first thing that Jesus does in, in this last paragraph is remind us of the eternal stakes at play in a person's response to Christ. Notice verses 8 and 9. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So once again, Jesus has the last day in view. I hope you're hearing the theme that's running through the whole paragraph. The last day, the final day. And his point here is strikingly clear. It's a point we've seen over and over in Luke. The person who confesses faith in Christ will receive Jesus' commendation on the last day. Well done, good and faithful servant. But the one who rejects Christ will himself be rejected. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Those are the eternal stakes facing every person. As we've noted time after time after time in Luke's gospel, there is no neutrality in response to Jesus. You either submit to him by faith, persevering to the end, or you deny him and receive the judgment of God for that rejection. Those are the stakes. Eternity lies before every person as they hear the gospel. But then you'll notice that Jesus issues what is perhaps the most alarming warning that he ever spoke while on earth. He speaks about the unpardonable sin. Look again, verse 10. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So these are serious matters. What is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that Jesus says is unforgivable? Many Christians have been afraid of this, this passage, worried that they've somehow blasphemed the Holy Spirit and, and didn't know it. I used to work with a guy and he would come to my office regularly in tears, afraid that he had accidentally blasphemed the Holy Spirit in his heart. And that, that's not funny, that's sad. Right? It was heartbreaking. So what is Jesus talking about when he says that there's a blasphemy against the Spirit that will not be forgiven? What's he talking about? Well, there are some interesting parallels with the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, 
But for the sake of time, I, I just want to think about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in Luke, in Luke's gospel. And you'll remember that in Luke, the Holy Spirit is very clearly connected with the earthly ministry of Jesus. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism, Luke chapter 3. The Holy Spirit was fully with Jesus during his temptation in the wilderness, Luke chapter 4. The Holy Spirit empowered Jesus at the outset of his ministry, also Luke chapter 4. Jesus even rejoiced in the Holy Spirit in the course of his ministry, Luke chapter 10. So all throughout Luke's gospel, this pattern has been very clear. God the Father works by his Spirit in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's key. That pattern is key, friends. God the Father working by His Spirit in and through Jesus Christ. So to affirm or confess the Holy Spirit is to affirm and confess God's work in and through Jesus. And that connection helps us understand what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Here's the definition that I would give. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the persistent final rejection of God's work in and through Jesus Christ. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The persistent final rejection of God's work in and through Jesus Christ. It is to hear who Jesus is, to see what Jesus does, and then to attribute Jesus' work to something other than the Holy Spirit. You see then that this kind of blasphemy is not so much a one-time act as it is a wholesale rejection of what God is doing in Christ by the Spirit. When a person rejects God's work in that way, there is no forgiveness for that person. Why? Because that person has cut himself off from the very means through which forgiveness comes, namely Jesus Christ. So this is very clear. It's not that there is a category of sin that Jesus' blood is unable to cover. That's not what Jesus means when he says unforgivable. Rather, it's that the person who blasphemes the Holy Spirit cuts himself off from the means through which forgiveness comes, that is, Christ. You see? In other words, no one accidentally blasphemes the Holy Spirit. No one accidentally does that. It's a definite, purposeful rejection of what God is doing in Jesus Christ. Now, there's one more curious thing about verse 10. Why does Jesus say that those who speak against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven? Why does Jesus say that? Remember, he, he is the Son of Man. So what is he getting at here? I think an illustration helps. Think of the difference between two apostles, Peter and Judas. Think of the difference between Peter and Judas. Peter denied Christ three times. And yet, by God's grace, Peter was restored from his denial. Peter repented, you see, and by grace, Peter was forgiven. He denied the Son of Man. He spoke a word against the Son of Man, but he was forgiven by grace through faith. Judas, on the other hand, wholeheartedly rejected Christ. He saw what Jesus did in the power of the Spirit, and Jesus, uh, Judas chose to betray God's Son rather than trust Him. And so unlike Peter, then, 
Judas was not forgiven but condemned. One man, in a moment of testing, denied the Lord but found grace through repentance. Another man, in a decision of hard-hearted rebellion, blasphemed God's work in Jesus and suffered eternal condemnation. All of that to say, there are eternal consequences for how you respond to Jesus Christ. That, that's the big takeaway from verses 8 through 10. There are eternal consequences for how you respond to Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ alone to save you, then this is the message that you need to hear. Turn from your sin. Trust that Jesus Christ shed his blood to save sinners like us. Believe that that blood was shed on your behalf and be saved for eternity is set before you. If you're not a Christian, that's the crux of the matter for you. Hear the gospel and believe. As we think about Jesus' disciples, though, the, the, these eternal realities, I just said that eternity is, is in the balance in these verses. These, these eternal realities are weighty to think about. We want to remain faithful to Christ, and yet we know that faithfulness is costly. What's more, we know that trials and persecution will come. Jesus even anticipates that in verse 11. They're going to haul you before the authorities, he says. So what's our confidence that we will remain faithful to the end? Where do we find the strength to confess Christ before men and thus honor our Lord? Well, Notice the, the final encouragement, the most powerful of all that Jesus gives in verse 12. There's no reason to be anxious for, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Friends, that's a remarkable assurance. The same Spirit at work in and through Jesus, will also be at work in and through Jesus' disciples to the very end. So instead of opposing the Spirit, the disciples can expect to receive from the Spirit the help that they need to stand firm. That's the final confidence when it comes to faithfulness. Our confidence is that the same Spirit who gave us life in Christ will sustain us in faithfulness to Christ until the very end. That's our confidence. The Spirit's work to bear us up from beginning to end. In other words, faithfulness to Jesus is a work of the Holy Spirit in those who believe. It's not a work that we do. It's a work that the Holy Spirit enables us to do by grace and through faith. And so therefore, we do not have to fear what this world might do to us. We do not have to worry about whether or not we will stand firm to the end. For those who belong to Christ, when the trials come, the Spirit Himself will give us what we need to remain faithful. And so I said the pressing question of this passage is will we remain faithful to Christ? That's the question in the context of this passage. It's the question that we have to answer. Will we remain faithful? In face of increasing opposition, will we remain faithful to the Lord? And friends, what I wanted you to see today is that there are two ways to answer that. The one is to say, of course I am. I'm going to be tough and strong and I'm never going to back down. The other way is to say, I know I can't do it on my own, but I trust that the Lord will sustain me by His Spirit to do so. This one sounds good. This one is good. So let's give ourselves to this dependence upon the Holy Spirit to help us remain firm until the end. In fact, I can think of no better way to end this passage and come to the table together than with the words of our Lord from Jesus Himself in this text. Fear not, 
Jesus says, for you are of more value to God than many sparrows. He will keep us to the end. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us. We want to remain faithful to you. We want to stand firm to the end. And we know, Father, that that is not something that we can conjure up on our own. And so we ask, God, for strength and encouragement and courage from the Holy Spirit to remain faithful to Christ, to make the good confession, to hold fast to the faith, and to, and to play our part, God, in your purposes to be the next link in the chain that moves the gospel from one generation to the next. Father, help us to remain faithful, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.